Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. Role-playing inspiration can come from anywhere, and we use our side quest to explore TV shows, movies, books, and other RPGs that influence our playstyle and storytelling. Whether we draw from intriguing plot points, amazing characters, or, well, you know, just kind of geek out about it, it should be a fun trip, and we're glad you came along for the ride. from today's sponsor lost in the woods come on honey let's go this way you don't know what to do i, I don't know where to look I, I just i don't know what to do you feel your sanity slowly strip away as you listen to one more children's song La, 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 no, la, 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 no, I can't. La, 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 I just can't take it. La, 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 I can't listen to it again. La, 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 please, please, no. Look, Dad, it's fun time with Mr. Dave. What? Oh, you're right. Look, there it is. Oh, it's right there at funtimewithmrdave.com. I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved. Fun time with Mr. Dave. Saving parents' sanity since 2020. Hey everybody, it's Josh from the Tabletop Journeys podcast. We wanted to give you all a heads up about this episode before you listen to it. We have a fantastic interview coming up with Ben from Spectre Studios long-time friend of all three of us. We're really excited to go ahead and present it to you. Anybody that has done any sort of podcasting or audio work knows that at times it can be an inexact science. And when this episode was recorded, there are some audio issues uh, that are going to be apparent as you're listening to it. We've done everything we can to try to clean it up and uh, make sure that it is uh, that is audible and the best quality possible. Everything's going to be intelligible, everything's understandable, but there there is definitely some uh, some audio, audio quality, which is not normally what you'll hear on the podcast. Trying to re-record an episode like this, uh, there's a certain magic that happens the first time that you do it, and we really wanted to capture that, and we thought that the interview did that very well. So we all just wanted to make sure that you knew that we were aware of it before you listen to it and think, uh, what the heck are these guys doing? Anyway, we hope that you enjoy the episode despite the audio issues, and thank you very much for listening and for supporting the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Welcome, everybody, to today's side quest. Uh, this is going to be a really great side quest for everybody because you have heard Liwanika and Glenn and I talk ad nauseum about some of the fantastic campaigns and games that we have played in throughout the years with this mythical dark force of the universe 
named Ben. Everybody, I would like to introduce you formally for the first time on Tabletop Journeys from Spectre Studios, Benito Sanase. Ben, welcome so much to the show. It is pleasure does not nearly describe what it is like to have you on the show talking shop with us today. Uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on and, and help you guys out and kind of talk about tales that you guys seem to enjoy so much to reminisce. Oh, <laughs> uh, we have. Yeah, uh, that does not like that does not even scratch the surface. I mean, it's like we have we have talked before about how playing in the the campaigns that we were playing in with you in the in the mid to the very mid nineties, <laughs> uh, uh, really. I mean, for me as a storyteller, they were very formative in the ways that I run my games now, and the way that I, the way that I even look at running games and homebrewing campaigns and making worlds and things like that. The things that you were doing at that game were so uh, informative to my process in particular. Um, it, I can't even describe. Your fingerprints are all over everything that I do, uh, literally and figuratively, in, in some cases. And so, um, it's it's. I'm really thrilled to to have you on. So yeah, I absolutely echo that. The very first uh, subclasses, though at the time they were called kits, that I ever built in Second Edition were designed for the campaign world that you were running for me at the time. It was I had this area that I controlled. I felt that I needed a new way to express the soldiers of an area I was in, and I built them from that. When we switched into third edition, I converted those to prestige classes. While I homebrewed worlds in that I did things in my own way and built my own lore, I had never homebrewed mechanics or classes or things like that until I'd seen you do it. And I learned from that mechanism, that, that process. That's actually where I got started with that. And though here today we're not talking about that, that's a whole nother uh, episode that we're going to do at some point in the future. I know we're going to get there because what I have done with figs and all of that started again at your table and for your table. And I have some insights that I'm going to share towards the end of all this as far as how I think things came to pass, or at least how it came out to me. And uh, wanted your thoughts on that. But uh, I'm so looking forward to this specific conversation, though we've had it in pieces and parts over the years for the audience so they can kind of learn with our roots, our background, uh, and then join us as we all go forward. Uh, No, I'm happy to have Benito on the show today as well. I don't have the history with him that Josh and Lee do. Um, I did meet him long ago while I was visiting Maine and I guested in a Vampire the Masquerade game of his. Um, and recently I've joined the streams of Spiro put out by Spectre Studios as Zendred. Um, so I've recently started playing with him as well. So now I at least, you know, have a DM to match to to match to the legend that Lee and Josh have been describing for as long as they've been describing. So and I've very much enjoyed being in your game. So welcome. Glad to have you. Thank you guys. Yeah, I'm glad to have all of you guys here. So Josh, I know usually you give us our lead in. I just wanted to say because I love the <laughs> Because I love the title, um, what uh, what we called our fabrication diaries, and we're starting at the ba- at the table side of the fabrication diaries, it is basically a series of side quests that we're going to be doing over the next few months, where we're going to have guests join us, and we're going to talk about elements of fabrication, uh, miniatures, figs terrain and the like and how that applies to the table this particular episode we're going to be talking with Benito and the idea is to really dig into the figs and how they how they appeared how they work and get into some stories 
about things we, that, that we've dealt with at the table, but I really wanted to talk about it. We're getting back to the gaming space. Right. Benito was saying just as we were opening up uh, our Zoom chat that uh, one of his local shops is opening up for gaming. Uh, our local shop, uh, the, the Citadel, has been open for a little while now, and we're looking forward to more and more live play spaces. And while we love our digital space and we will be continuing to do many things in digital, I don't think it's an either-or discussion. I think it's a how do we best use both. And that's really why I wanted to do this. We spent a year away from the physical table. So we wanted to go and talk about a specific tool in great detail that can and will be used at, uh, at tables. We're going to dive right into the questions here. Um, so uh, the first one that I wanted to, to get your take on, uh, Ben, was that one of the things that was so stark about your game when I started playing in it was... I don't want to call it a, like a hard requirement, but it was certainly strongly recommended that each player that came to that game had a painted fig for their character um, to represent at the game table. Talk a little bit about where that idea came from and what purpose did that serve in your campaign? Well, from what you guys are talking about, I'm bringing back probably being much older and making us feel very old to our podcast. But uh, <laughs> going back to basically when we're like about second edition and all the when the, that was coming out and the box sets were coming out, there was a company, a couple of companies out there that were putting out bigger box sets that kind of went hand in hand with these, uh, Ralph Arthur and Grenadier. And somehow during the toy store visits with my parents, um, I came across not only these books, but these sets of miniatures. That really started the miniature love immediately. Like we, I, we, I play, I'm a, I'm a man, young boy playing toy action figures and, and army men and stuff like that so having this option all of a sudden was amazing just amazing and then one of my greatest memories was a going up to me because we were doing this has happened a lot when i was in Rhode island and finding another toy store up in maine that just seemed to have the smaller package they didn't have the box no i couldn't find anyone that had these individual sets just one toy store had at the moment so i was able to get the various creatures and stuff and start building the worlds from that so that was always that started to want me to have this collection going forward. So as soon as I got to the running tables and I had, I started having many players at my table. It was, I never really had the, what most people tell me they have three, four players at a table. It's pretty contained and set. I was running consistently up to 12, 14 players at my table <laughs> to make sure things were pretty, everyone knew where they were and not having to always do the theater of the mind and discuss that, that, that figure alignment on a table set answers a lot of visual questions almost immediately for um, for my players. So they can kind of get a sense of where they need to be, who's in trouble, who's being surrounded. And then also part of it, you can take you can take away less time from having to describe things with miniatures. You know, a new monster that I found, I put it on the table, painted up there, and you guys were like, what is that? You know, so, <laughs> uh, it was a lot of that part of it. And that, and that was a lot of my driven force behind using the miniatures. And, you know, we had to build a lot of terrain, be very creative with how we constructed things compared to what everyone gets now. Like, I am falling back in love with MDF terrain features and things that you can print off now to make brilliant, beautiful, easy to understand areas. But back then, we had to really be super creative. The miniatures kind of helped lock the immediate area, but we had to be pretty creative with the outside part of it. But, yeah, that was just, it was more or less to keep track of everything because combats, I didn't do many combats in my game it was a lot about the role plays if you guys remember but the combats were meant to be serious they were meant to be 
And it was always the story that I was told. It was, you guys were the quality, you're the heroes. So, uh, you know, the one-on-one combats could get kind of dicey. So it was always going to be about the quantity, you know, the Larry Elmore paintings, uh, the stories that you read in many of the books, you guys taking on dozens and dozens of enemies. So for me to get 20 orcs on a table and you be able to see all these figures just dropping in front of you and, and making piles around you was, was that love that I saw out of you guys as players that made me continue to want to do that. And, you know, especially when they, when they first set up until when it ended, you see the, the mayhem of a, of a field. It was that after battle gratification that, that made it very important to be the end. It is something even in a digital space that I do to this day, wherever possible, even though it makes everything look cluttered. Uh, I like creating icons to say that's a dead body. That's now difficult terrain. Yeah. And, and uh, when you lay a fig down and it's there and your fig cannot easily get to it, it is visual and it's immediate. You know why it took you 15, 15 feet of movement to get 20 feet away or, or, or five feet away uh, because your fig literally cannot stand in that square. It's tipped to the side. It's falling over itself. That tells you how difficult the battle is visually. It, it is. It's a beautiful visual shorthand, and I that's a great skill that storytellers really can learn from in physical spaces. Leaving the dead figs down where you can. Uh, obviously, there are going to be situations where that's not possible, but where you can leave it there. If there's confusion because it's there, weave that into your story. You're not really sure. You can't see so-and-so. Yeah, no, Figs definitely brought that visual aspect to gameplay that made such a difference for all of us. I wasn't involved in the games back then that y'all were playing, but they definitely, they added that last piece to help the players too envision it and free up more of their imagination for what they want to do and the next actions they're going to take and, you know, the next cool line they're going to throw out as opposed to having to devote so much mental energy trying to keep track of a pure theater of the mind combat scenario. Even if you have an amazing DM who explains everything really well, by the time you're talking about five or six players, even if it's only five or six monsters and then field position, trying to keep track of all of that in your head and then relate it accurately to other people is brutal. Um, And the trick that Ben uses now trying to bring his gameplay into the digital space where he's still using figs, but with an extra camera. So you get that visual as uh, someone in his game. Super cool. I mean, he had a a full on and I'm probably jumping topic. My apologies, but he had a full on gladiatorial arena like set up (laughs) in the last game that we were in. It was pretty hot. Yeah. Yeah. it, 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 and it, that's the way that this episode, I think, is going to go, is that every time Ben talks, we're going to remember that's a million okay. things. We can bounce back and forth. We'll, we'll go bouncing back and forth here, but totally agree. One of the other things, Ben, that you kind of opened my eyes to as a, as a young pup in the mid-90s, you know, um, uh, was just the sheer scope. You know, uh, Lou and Ika talked about it a, a little bit about, and you too, about how, you know, like there are 20 orcs on the table and having that visual representation of the 20 orcs is so visceral. One of the other things that I remember from you are these large, sweeping, epic battles with skeletons and undead that just seemingly poured over the table because you ju- they just kept coming and sort of how that relentless march of the undead was made so perfect by the sheer number of figs that you had out there. So I guess uh, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this as far as a question, but I guess like, it's like how much time investment did you put into making armies of that scale 
to deliver that sort of visceral effect. Before you go in there, Ben, let me just say this. Our listeners need to know that at the time that we're talking about, there were no such thing as prepainted figs. Right. Every fig had to be bought. Most of them had to be glued and put together. Ugh. Then they had to be primed, and then they had to be painted. There was no, it came to you pre-primed. There was no, it came to you pre-painted. Like, I love me some whiz kids because it saves me a little bit of time, right? But I am telling you, Ben put almost all of this together and painted by hand. And hell if they weren't great paintings. But so yeah. now, now that we've set the stage for you, talk about the time commitment you put into producing the, the, these uh, these figs and uh, how that how that worked. It's a lot of time, but uh, for me, I was artistic just growing up. I drew and colored all the time, so it was very therapeutic for me. It's a it's a chance. It's a it's a DM scope for me to start the planning. Uh, I think you kind of mentioned before, you know, you find a good fig. Or you start finding a good set of uh, minis and stuff like that. They can start to help set set the tone of how you want to put things together and, and use them in a story. So that's really it's really a lot where I took all that time to do all that stuff, building terrain, building the creatures up, getting the collection built. And I will add, most people have it nicer now because back then most of them were lead, so it was like quite the carry when I was bringing many of these models around. So location was key. Uh, but, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, like I don't, I don't know how the car, the shots on your car made it, because I saw you like <laughs> it was like a clown car of things <laughs> you brought out to one session. It was like one case after another. I mean, it was yeah. like, I'm like, oh my god, we're all dead. Like this is TPK time because he's yeah. he's still got to go another three trips to the car to bring in more cases. It is hard, I think, for us to sort of realistically paint how terrifying this was to literally without exaggeration, see hundreds of figs coming out on the table and all of them crafted in such like variation in the way that the skeletons would hold their sickle or, or, you know, like what body part is missing from the, like from the zombie or what? Like, so it's like, like we're talking like just in awe in, in kind of the scope that you were bringing to the table. And again, you talked about that, that visceral nature of like, when you drop 20 orcs on the table, all of a sudden it makes the fact you've got to kill 20 orcs real. When all of a sudden you drop 150 skeletons on the table, it brings, it makes it real that we got to fight 150 skeletons before we even get to the big bad guy. Just a genius move on your part. Well, for me, it made me look at all the terrain he also built. Like, that's my exit. That's right. my other exit, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get there in time. So yeah. I guess I'm fighting. <laughs> yep. I guess it's a lot to my DMing, where I basically, I, I really take a lot of what I do in games to be a director and writer to a story. And I treat my players as improv actors. So normally I have a very large group, so I can't make everybody the great hero. I've got to break everyone kind of down. Um, but you got to set the mood, too, you know. Um, you gotta allow them to see death. They gotta see consequences. And it, it's one of those things too. You put a party together, it's just six players. And all of a sudden you put a, you say there's four bodyguards and a big bat. Everyone wants the big, wants the big bat. But when you put the bodyguards with the miniatures on the table and they see how difficult it is to get to him or he's taking a terrain advantage position and stuff, there's a lot more now that helps a DM2 player get the things to understand and how you're going to move operate all of a sudden you see the tactical talk about fireballs 
you know, you're not having to continue to ask the diameter. It's a little bit more easier to kind of put a lot of tools in place to show that you drop this fireball, it's hitting your barbarian who decided to engage the two, the two bodyguards too. Um, so you've got to be a little bit more, you see a little bit more of that strategy and the tacticians coming to play for your players in that. So like Muppet creating or stage directing or you know, making a movie, all that miniature part can be, you can utilize those tools to do that to help bring that bridge between you and the players together to make a greater story. So the, a lot of that stuff is simple and you can deal with your character's emotions and stuff like that that's being played out um, through the story. And that's that's more important to me. So all that stuff was to get that out of the way when I took the time to build all those stuff. <laughs> and, it, it, and it's brilliant because that made me as a player in those early games, those very early games, like that made me invest in, in the game. My first game with you was a pickup game. I was a guy you didn't know. You were a, a storyteller I didn't know. It was a buddy of mine, couldn't make it to a game that he had an invite to, asked if I could go. I went. I even asked him to take my girlfriend at the time with me, and we just show up. And you're, and, and I remember talking to you briefly, like, bring some characters, have a good idea where you came from, and then we'll go from there. And uh, so I came to you. Even though I had a four-page story written, I only handed you the short two-paragraph bit uh, <laughs> or whatever. Though I handed you, I think, three sessions in, the full thing. Um, but to start with, I didn't scare you with that. I'm like, I have an idea of what's going on. And, and then, like, we got started. But the first time we got figs, and there were figs there, and I didn't have one because I had never painted a fig before that um, or had a fig uh, at all before that. I hadn't played a game with figs other than Battletech at some point in the past. I remember looking around at everybody else who had their figs going, how am I... And I fashioned myself a pretty good role player, like the only one who is is out. Like I was on the out. I felt on the out. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to go on. There's a little bit of peer pressure with that. And uh, But I remember saying to myself that I felt better when I first got and painted my first thing for that character. Like I just felt better. It felt real to me. And it was largely because I painted like I showed up at somebody else, I used somebody else's paints. I didn't even own paints, so I did buy my own brush. Uh, and I painted my fig. And it was like, and it wasn't a great painting job. It was not my best, um, but it was mine. I did it. I took it from zero to here, and it was wonderful. Um, and that's kind of amazing. I really, I really like that that feel that I got. Yeah, I think that, I think they help they help you really see you playing that character when you see the mini a little bit more and sometimes it's a portrait and i love minis and i love fig painting but is it an exercise in frustration for me which is why it would be a struggle for me to always come up with a new fig for every character i want to but i'm a perfectionist right and i can really get into painting a fig and i'll spend forever on it but i'm gonna mess up and i'm gonna make the that that eyeball not look like an eyeball and instead look like a strange black blotch because i didn't let the paint underneath it dry enough and i'm going to wind up swearing and i'm going to wind up screaming and yeah. throwing things but in the end when it's done i love it totally i mean i've got 20 goblins primed behind me you can see it on camera if i turn the right direction that i've i primed about a week ago and i'm still like nope i'm just i'm going to make sure that that sets it's been really humid there's 20 of them i don't want to mess it up like that's you know um and again it's it's because where my players are going, it's it's one of those things, it's those economy of scale situations. I thought that they were going to be hitting this particular thing a level earlier than they're hitting it. So it's like, well, the, the, the 50 goblins I've got aren't enough. I need another 25 to go ahead and trot out there and really make this the deadly can the, the deadly encounter or the, the, the encounter of scale that, that, that their level uh, uh, denotes. 
So I, I wanted to hop on to something else that you said earlier, um, Ben. Uh, you were talking about, you know, you find you find the the fig and it's the or the right creature or the right monster that you want to bring out, and so you're gonna you're gonna paint it up and you're gonna drop it on the table to go ahead and see our reactions as players. I'm gonna ask you the chicken and egg question, right? So do you find more that your figs drive your story or that the story pointed you in a direction to look for a particular fig or a particular creature like or is it kind of a mix of the two pretty much what it's going to be um any real true i guess creator inspired it's going to take any any aspiration of, uh, of creativity when you find it sometimes i find a fig and i was like amazing i, I think one of the that you guys ran into azarian was completely designed by the fig like i saw the fig and then i knew that this was a great villain to put on this table so then it, then that fabrication of the story would come to that then there was others you know just having the goddess herself silk was more like i kept looking around you know i, I think i changed her fake three or four times throughout the campaign to the story depending on how things kind of develop so i would never say pigeonhole yourself in something like that if you're going to be creative be creative let let things be as it is the story is still and that's my thing even as a dm is i don't i don't want to railroad players going down a path you want to keep it as open as possible you just don't know what direction things go and that's great you, you want to stay as open and things going in be the same thing with your miniature collection you know the only thing i would say though my only series was to treat the common species races lineages all that were out there to give them their just due uh you know it wasn't like always the dragon and the dragon would always going to take the scene and always be you guys remember the orcs the goblins um, and the undead always had a huge presence of their numbers in. So it was a lot of that token presence where you were going to be dealing with them. It's early on, you started in small groups, but as you guys leveled up, it became large groups. And then they were supplemented by trolls and ogres and giants. And then the parties were getting larger to kind of deal with the third edition's combat system. So, but you always, you had to keep that presence to keep, you know, as you're still doing as a set, you still got to remember you want to stay in theme of your world and just continue to use them. And then that's how the collection of the orcs and stuff got to that point. So one of Lee's favorite things he wanted me to mention was the Battle of Kazgara, where literally was wall a wall and just minis that line from one edge of the table to another. And none of the players were there but one. And that that still set such a tone in that session world. But that was the point. It, it, you, you, you see the players, all you guys are sitting around knowing that this was dire, this had to be this. And then still allow that role play session to have it have it what it did was still will always be one of my fondest memories uh, a tale i always tell quite a bit i've never had to throw people out of the room before uh no <laughs> no i've never seen it ever ever in anything i've seen uh, on the internet but that session was the most heated and intense i've ever seen for role playing group yeah i have to say that this is where i'm going to call myself out um <laughs> as i was ejected from the game room on, on that one we're at, at ben's apartment <laughs> Uh, he's got this huge table set up. This wall is built. I mean, hundreds, if not, it felt like thousands. It felt like he literally had armies that went off the table. He's like, there's more behind them, but we don't have enough table. And he's got like this stack of cases just waiting to feed the armies. Like he had enough where it's like they're advancing and he would just put the rear ranks in front and add them as they would approach and get closer because that was the size of this undead army that was coming at us. And um, most of the party was a couple of days away. 
and, and we're like trying to tell the one player, don't do anything. Just hold the line until we get there. And Ben's like, you guys are not there. Stop talking to him. And the bad guy, as Arian then mentioned, um, challenges the, the one player to a solo duel for the whole kingdom. By the way, my character is king of this kingdom. And I was pretty annoyed that my character's brother said, okay, I'll do this duel. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So he dueled away my kingdom while I was not there because he was the regent. So it was within his legal right to duel away my kingdom. And I went off. And Ben's like, out. So I'm <laughs> out. And me and two or three other players were in the in, in a galley-style kitchen around the corner. We can hear everything that's going on, but we cannot interact with it. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's terrible. Terrible. One of the greatest single gaming events of my life, of my gaming career, because it was so visual. For people to understand this, this was a lesson I wanted Paige. I wanted to set up another tone for the the next campaign. But it was also to realize that I have, we had again, many, many players at my table, about a dozen players. And they were, we have our major players. Lee was one of the major players. Like I would put the major role as a star in the cast. We had the support ones. Many times they were getting left behind, not being a part of it. So when the epic, and came in, it was that sub character player that had to make the choice. And um, the players at that table that night learned a hard lesson of why you take care of your NPCs, why you take care of your, every member of your party, to let them know the whole scope of things and bring them involved because kingdoms can be taken away in a heartbeat. And uh, it was a great, it was a great catalyst as campaigns go. That's how why a lot of legacy has gotten to where it was for many people main that have played in it. Because of events like that, there, were, there was always a, there were wins and there were many losses, but you had to make sure that balance was in there. But I always made sure that tipping and morality was very important in gaming. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was, it was huge, but it was an amazing, amazing story. And I am still friends and in contact with that particular player on Facebook. And I would say at least once or twice a year, I give him some crap about that. <laughs> That's it. Just because. <laughs> and we remain good friends. But I give him some crap about that one. On that one, I, uh, hearkening back into it to the time when Lee got thrown out, I couldn't come up with anything to jump in there with because that one was pure memory that I wasn't in on. So, um, I mean, I could, I can definitely back up the fact that you got to keep the end game and the out of game separate. But yeah, I, I failed on that night. I, 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 I abjectly said, like, I, I don't think that's ever happened, even under difficult circumstances. Before or since, but that was the moment. And that was, uh, that was it's all, it, oh, it can always be hard. I mean, putting that point where you're in a spot where like the action that's going on is so epic, however it applies totally. to, to what's going on to your to your character, and you're like, I can, I've actually stood up and walked away. I can relate. Yeah, I've stood up and walked, stepped away, got a drink or something on my own because I knew I was not going to be able to contain myself. I've done that. Oh a few yeah. Times. But that was the time where it, it had to be handled. And it wasn't, I don't want to catch. You got thrown yeah. out. That's it crazy. Was not, uh, uh, it was not a, a violent or an angry at you kind of situation. It was, it was a clear understanding between Ben and myself that we were all so invested in this game that I was not capable of containing my excitement. And so he gave me a place I could do so. I needed, to, I, I needed a supernova. But it couldn't be in that moment. I needed to let that other player have his moment, however badly it was going. <laughs> I mean, I'm 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 going to stand up and admit that when uh, in the 
campaign that Ben ran until a couple of months ago, uh, in the penultimate game of that campaign, when I realized that that campaign was really just an extension of the same campaign that we played 20 years ago. Oh, I had some, I had some choice words for you, sir. I really like, there were some, there were some, there were some thoughts and there were some things that, that, uh, that I, I may have called you some unseely names in my head. I'm just saying that like, and some of them slipped out. I fully admit that as a, as a, I, I will stand up and admit that I said unkind things, but they were all met with love. I promise. Um, yeah, that, that, that scene was set up very much like Coke in Battle of Five Armies. The players knew what was at stake they needed to get there and it was in the hands of a player they didn't really brought bring a lot of communication in he, he was very on the on the outskirts so all of a sudden it was a it was a big change of things and in your campaign lately you know i i was very proud of you because you were the one that got understood the npc very very well you, you developed that we played that out very well um you know having that so when you were not in the scene when she was in a scene you felt that yeah. aggravation but it, it it played in your favor because you Totally. Nice lessons, I'm not even sure that I've ever filled you in on this. And so uh, what he's talking about is that I had, so I was like the ship captain, swashbuckler, my, my right-hand woman and I, um, about six games before the end of the game, um, had begun a relationship. And so Ben and I on Facebook, every once in a while, I would send him little stuff about how, you know, uh, you know, Electo is writing love poetry or he's written a song about her or he, you know, just like shooting her a glance across the deck for like, you know, six games or so leading into this last game. And then in the last game, we get separated. Um, and she winds up with who winds up being the big bad guy. Well, a variation on the big bad guy, but that's a separate issue. And he, uh, the big bad starts tempting her with visions of me with somebody else in totally innocuous situations, but with, with, uh, twisting the context to make it look like I'm, I'm stepping out. Right. And thankfully, dirty dog. Oh, absolutely. And the entire time I'm sitting there, I'm like, no. No, do you can't you can't let her go. This will break Electo. If he if she leaves, he'll have nothing. Well, remind him also of what you had lost with your ship. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's like everything. I had lost everything. I so my entire crew had been gone. One of my crew had turned dirty and tried to go ahead. I had to negotiate to go ahead and find my way out of hell to get back to the realm of the living. Like he had literally lost everything. Uh and except for this one person. And so that's, so it's like, I don't think I did this intentionally, to be honest, but I'm sure somewhere in the back of my lizard brain, I was like, make sure, make sure you talk up the NPCs, keep the NPCs close, give the NPCs agency, make sure that Ben knows you care about them. Like that's, you know, because like I tried to do that with my entire crew and all of them had been gone. There was one left and it was this one person. When, when the, when the warlock started tempting her, I was like, she's going to be gone too. And, and then, and then she went up six C's and I was like, oh, thank God. Like, and, and it was all because like of that investment that had gone in. And that's all that to go ahead and say that that's sort of the epic scope that you have been able to introduce. You know, uh, Lou and Nika, you were talking about the the battle on the walls uh, uh, with Azarian and then the one on one battle. I still remember the time that a player got so mad at my character uh when when my elven my my supreme elven archer i'm the only one that can make this shot and i roll a crit fail and wind up shooting one of these soldiers <laughs> but you can hate it when that happens when it's your moment to shine and the one rolls up no, and what was what was worse was that because of the crit fail i had shot 
one of so uh, elven archer i had shot a human in the back with my arrow and it was the captain of that unit that was a player character literally came and is like yelling in my face about how could you do that how could you be so careless how could you know and i'm just like it's casualties casualties happen like these this is war <laughs> and he's like what are you t- what do you mean like he's like he's breaking the arrow in front of me throwing it on the, like i I really thought the player was going to hit me. Like, it was like, okay, like, you know, you know, but that's the sort of emotion that this brings about. This is, it's how much investment you're able to get with this stuff. It, it's, and it's just fabulous. And again, it's because of the way you're able to introduce this epic nature. I mean, I say with a simple mechanic, but really just with time and investment and, and knowing how it's knowing how to deploy it more than anything else too. It's knowing when to go ahead and do it. Um, and when not. Yeah, you see those miniatures and you, I mean, you got to see who your friends were um, and ally them in. Like, you remember the guard that was around uh, our scare, our scare, you know, you got to see a bunch. You had a whole crew, you had a sit. Uh, that's how to get a group invested with that simple mechanic. It is a costly hobby part of it, but it's no different than the books and other things that you want to look into. But it really does help shape what you're seeing, uh, especially when you want to do some scale things like you put a dragon on the table or a giant and you put your little miniature down the near his knee or thing that you're realizing like i'm in a big fight and when the dragon does something you're going to be realizing that oh my god i'm going to be taking a, a crap load of damage and things are going to be different so that just it just again it just helps you scale and if you treat it as a treat miniatures as a director you where you want people in place it just helps you tell that story easier so i could concentrate on you guys emotions and that's really where I use those tools and why they're important to me. And and all of that is a great segue, Josh, what you said, and Ben, that, that follow-up is a great segue into one of the things that I mentioned earlier in the episode. One of the factors that I recognized uh, in playing multiple campaigns is something that you did, and I don't know if it was design, by design so specific. I doubt it, but this is the way it kind of worked out. You gave a reward for painting your own thing, getting and painting your own thing. Getting your own fig, having somebody else painted, it was an honor system, got a slightly less reward, and it was experience points. Essentially, anybody who started in a campaign that started at level one, you could be a level two character simply by having your own fig and painting. So much so, most of our campaigns started with almost the entire party being level two. I thought that was brilliant. Generally, a few sessions in or several sessions in, you went on to then add uh, if hey, if you want, if there's NPCs you really like and, and you really dig, you could take care of. You can add those as well. I was going to ask you, trying to remind myself to ask a question about that because I kind of liked it. But what if you weren't able to have one for the first game? Whether it's so everybody else starts at level two and you're that poor guy. You know, if you get it by level three and you have a painted fig, do you get that level? Well, I was giving it like experience points to get you to that level back then. This is before milestone, so. Gotcha. So it would have been a specific experience point amount. So you could just get that at any point. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It was a straight up 1000 is what it was. Listening to your talk. That's just a question that popped into my head, but all right, cool. So we got the thousand experience points, uh, 500. If it was somebody else that did the work, uh, like if you bought one that was painted or somebody painted it for you, you got like 500 and then, but somewhere usually about three, four sessions in or three, four levels in, as it turned out, interestingly enough in a five V world tier two, so to speak, you would start saying things like, hey, if there's an NPC that you really like that doesn't already have a fig, I'm going to toss you a couple of, you know, 500 experience points or experience points if you're painting that fig also. So all of a sudden, it's you have your fig that you're invested in, 
your favorite NPC, and every player had like this one NPC that they were free, that they were tied to, that they spoke with, that they dealt with, and then they would get that fig. We were very invested in that NPC character. Like we would have uh, scenes where it's like, you know, hey, hey Ben, I'm going to take so and so aside, and we're going to talk this. So we have these two characters that had a voice in a decision that the party was going to make. Oh, several sessions after that, because we're now we're big enough level where most of us were in charge of units, that character became our second in command in charge of the unit. And all of a sudden, we were getting, again, some experience points if we got a fit, got and painted our unit. And, that's, and so by tier three, now we're unit commanders. We've got six, seven folks or 12 folks, depending on the size of the unit, whatever fit the scenario or, the, or, or that particular campaign. And uh, we were doing that. And then, lo and behold, by the time, if we got, if we all survived and we played in a Ravenloft setting, so not, we didn't often survive through Tier 3, but if we survived or the campaign or we didn't retire uh, in Tier 3, I always envisioned, like, now, hey, field your own army, and the same thing would likely happen. And it dawned on me in looking at the 5e setup that that, while it was never as specific as at this level, I'm going to ask for X, it dawned on me that it fit very neatly into that growth. It was almost like, this is where you are. You start out and it's you against the world in, in the context of your party. But now you're so good that oh, there's always a, an extra person who wants to be involved and will join you. And then all of a sudden, man, you're so good. Now you've got this group of folks. You're there's almost a cult of personality forming around each of you individually as heroes. And then next thing you know, uh, it's like, now you're running a city. Now you're running a whatever. And I just, it dawned on me that it felt that way. And I didn't know if that was happenstance, part of the overall plan, or was it something that was like specifically that you set out to do? I definitely set out to do it because Early on, because there were many of you guys, remember up to 12 players, sometimes up to 14, I had to find out who was going to be committed. And then usually most of you were, but there was always one or two that would always be close. So early on, that just gave me the indication that you got to pay, got to pay, you're in, you're invested into that. Plus, again, I want to state the world was going to be displayed with an entry form, and that just made you had a character. Without, it was just make it, it was probably your character sheet. You had, you had the character sheet, you had the main, you're good to go in the Alana setting of my world to go ahead and start playing. So that just gave you all that element. Plus third edition, to be honest, you're still pretty weak at first level. It was an, it was an easy excuse to keep you alive. You know, extra more, extra more hit points between DM to player allows you that one or two more hits. Again, I'm treating everyone as a hero. You want to treat them as a story of the cast. You don't want them going down in combat just because someone fired a stray arrow and, and it put a guy down. So those were all pretty elements that just kind of went hand in hand. And as the NPCs, it's again the same thing where you want your players to treat like there's a cast around them, an ensemble. So when you had your little sister around or a key priest, um, those are all very important parts, and they could and they could mean something. Miniatures like uh, like uh, Anastasia, uh, Asiana, she was a huge part of your campaigns for several campaigns because she was an elf. So that mini could carry, and then that mini would make that much more difference when we put her on the table. You guys identified it. I didn't have to do anything else but put that mini on the table, and you immediately knew 
who she was, what she could do, what was going to come uh, aspects to come out of that. So these were all they helped me to get you guys all invested in wanting to tell the story and continuing the story and being make sure that you're engaged in part. When you get to the next point with making units, was because you guys remember you guys influence culture. It was one of the biggest things about world building that you don't get in many campaigns. I know that changes a lot of people when they talk about my campaigns compared to what they run into because most of the time they run a campaign and it's done. You never really see much part of that. The continuation of what I ran meant when you were playing the children of their children, of their children, and you're talking about, I can recite 200 years of character history with my character and the family, but you had a guard or ensemble of people around you. You created, you influenced because you're a hero. People all want, you're gonna, a hero is going to get people to follow them. So to have you guys put miniatures on the table that were going to follow you anyways and show your colors and, and give you that much more uh, status was very important for me to make sure that that basically happened. But it's also what made my stories important because you had this collection now that you were building, you knew you were going to carry over to your next child. Like that's probably what makes a lot of that difference when you're talking about the miniatures and you treat it as like your wardrobe set for not just me as the DM, but to the players, that's going to continue. That that wasn't going to be something you pick up and then you store away in a box and you never really saw again. You guys knew that this was going to carry over to the next campaign. And that makes a lot of campaigns in my world, what I did, different than I think a lot of people play. You end up, well, we're in Eberron one world and then we're into Pharaoh in the next. And, you know, you're just kind of bouncing around and you don't know where you're establishing it. But for you guys, it was, I'm in Greyhawk. That's the way it's going to be. The Greyheim area, that's what I'm going to do. I'm in Kaskara. I could build the Elite Guard. I could build the Wizard Group. I could build the Clarity. You guys began to build that army. So when I did those epic battles, you guys were also extra resources, but you were invested. You felt, I saw you guys' faces in your hearts. And like, that's my unit. That's my Elite Guard. So that became now more of the Hogan's Heroes type of thing or the Star Trek you know, bridge group, like that, you became that part, that became an identity part to you. And as a DM, it's my important to write the NPC backgrounds to make sure they collaborate with you and they have backstories. I mean, Glenn's experiencing this fabulously right now. If you look, if you're looking for that in Strange of Spiral, there are miniatures there. But each one of these figures have a huge story specifically with Glenn's character that he can move around and shuffle. And he's, I'm pushing and I'm testing and he's already showed me with one character I've been trying to wreck. This is uh, his barbarian, but he's making sure, like, hey, move that barbarian figure right to my side, a Zindrit, and I'm going to do this. And it's been fantastic. That's what you can use out of that collaboration of miniatures and investments when you put when you put those things in, in, into play. And as a player, the challenge is cool too to rise to it. You know, um, it can be tough, especially for, uh, especially if you know you're working with a newer player to bring somebody in at a high level into an established group. And kind of coming in with a role already in mind, right? But then still leave them enough wiggle room to make it their own, which Ben did a great job with. Um, but he he goes so in-depth into the backstories and their relationships and how they tie into the culture and uh, the, the city. I play a, a drow paladin. Um, and the way that the, the draw race is changing and evolving in this world is all really neat and uh, super interesting. And it gives you so much to work with as an experienced player that I had a great time building from there because I was presented already with this op with this 
kind of package. And it was going to be, I was going to have a team. There's more than just me. You know, I've got multiple people on in my order of paladins, you know, and I got to kind of, and he gave me the people, but then it gave me a chance to try to get creative with it and figure out, okay, well, if that's the case, if this is what I've got to work with, how tactically would we approach it? You know, because we're clearly a group of strains together. And that created backstory between the NPCs that was fun um, that I got to reveal a little bit in the game. Um, and it just, it, it, it made it a good time. And she, she does a good job controlling her group as a group, you know, as we move into different situations, just because of how much I rose to what he handed me. So it was, it was really cool. And I'm really, really, really I'll enjoying up on that. I just want to say one point because it's, a, it's what you guys experienced in the past. He has a great team, some of his elite fighters and stuff like that. But I was through the wrinkle in. He has a cousin who got attached to the group. You kind of find out she's not really the combat, combat tier chips. She can bring a lot of other things to the table. So it's those non-companions. Remember that the other part of the miniature collection that you guys come back into. You remember the units and all the fighters that are that. But remember the, the noble sister or, or the friend or something that's kind of around that you didn't have. Now, also, when you put that piece on the table, you still have to now remember what they are because they're not in the front lines and trying to flank and do all this. They're kind of that piece that's now in danger. And that's the other part of the tactical element which miniatures can bring to the table where now you have a collateral damage piece that's very likely going to happen as an NPC if, if you don't take care of it or keep an eye on it. As you start telling people, as players start going, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, the lower initiative players all start, start to say, um, is anybody going to be standing next to uh, what's her face over there? Because she's about to be left alone, and that's what—that's an important part of what miniatures can offer. I will say, coming in, coming into a game, uh, you know, Glenn, you talked about coming into oh. a game that Ben is running as an experienced role player and a strong role player. I remember, I remember the first time that I sat at his table playing Androsius, the the Elven Archer, um, and how quickly I realized that. I I knew nothing, Jon Snow. I was, yeah. you know, I was like, it, it's it's really, it's you know, you're sitting there, like you said, you had like 12 people in that game and like people who, A, have been playing generations of characters. And so my character is coming into a world that he didn't know. And me as a player, I'm coming into a world that I did not know. And it was, it was a holy shit moment. Like, okay, I need to like, and that's why, like, I know for me, like, figuring out what Androsius looked like and finding his voice and, and getting that physical representation was so key in understanding and getting into that character. Cause I mean, that character went all sorts of sideways over time. He very much kind of got like corrupted by his own mentality. Cause he came in like, you know, haughty, noble, high elf, and just like got chewed up and spit out by this campaign to the point where he basically said, fine, I'm going to go back to the woods and taking my toys with me and I'm not playing with anybody anymore. You know, like, and that was totally like, I did not know that that's where that character was going to go, but he, he came in with one attitude and it just totally, it, it, it got totally taken off from underneath him. And it's just it, amazing. Uh, I was going to add that a couple different things. One, uh, also playing in Seems of Spiro, my character, um, as effectively the solo tactician prior to Zindrid and her team being there welcomes Zindrid and her team because now it's like there's a unit of fighters for all these specialists so of warriors and so now we can go do what we need to do 
to allow the specialist to get the jobs done. And, and, and I love uh, all the things uh, and the, the back, of, back of the house uh, work uh, uh, that was done to make that unit cohesive and, and work smoothly. Because then my character gets to say, well, this is the way I do things, but I don't get to run roughshod. I get to say, here's what I do. You got to say, here's what we do. And I'm like, how can we work together? And over the course of three sessions, I think at this point, uh, we have come up with, I think, what's a very cohesive mechanism for the fight. And, and it, like our last battle scene was, uh, from my, my, my specific perspective, very smooth. Like I thought we got into the right positions in the right way, in the right timing, and it was awesome. It was a beautiful thing for me to, to kind of be a part of. Um, and it is about some of the things we're talking about. It's about that investment in the characters, backstory, meeting visualizations, all of those. Things. I, I was going to say, you know, speaking of some of those units, uh, one of the scenes that I remember vividly is uh, about building the unit was I built the Greyhound Riders, a, a nightly group, built those after a campaign ended. Like we had finished the campaign where I played this character, but it was discussed in the discussions between campaigns that, oh, you're now in charge of the city. Uh, you get to make a unit in your like likeness. So I I got the figs for these Greyhound Riders, figuring that it would be nothing other than if we ever need to be in that area, we'll have them at the ready. Well, somewhere in the middle of the second campaign, a separate task needed to be done. So my character from the first campaign, my current character's father, old, had diminished by the old second edition rules because he's now old. So he had lost some of his physical stats, improved some of his mental stats, basically says, I'm going after this myself. And he takes his elite guard with him. So I have my original fig and all these figs on horseback. And I'd actually built the done a fig for him on horseback as well at that point. And we all then we go to fight fight the fight the bad. And I got to use a unique tactic that would never have worked theater of the mind. Like I wouldn't have visualized it, come up with it. Then had a group of goblins, about, uh, I want to it was a platoon size, so maybe 30, 40 of them or whatever in a square blocking the entrance to a cave. Our target was within the cave. And I have this, this unit, it was a small unit, it was like 12 on horseback. And I'm like, I can't go through 40 people on horseback. We will get bogged down, we'll get swarmed and we'll get slaughtered. But we had, we, this was time. There was this, an amount of time that had to be, this had to be accomplished. So riding at them, I then said, I'm going to take a, a, a turn right as it looks like we're going to hit them. So we clip off the end of them. The bulk of our forces does not meet the bulk of their forces, but we're basically going to do a um, 45 degree cut right as we're about to hit them and take off that edge. And then we're going to ride off and turn around and come right back at the, at the flank of, the, of that group. So they, and then we take another corner and we ride off and, and we basically just kept taking off corners of this unit until they were small enough that we could take them because we couldn't get to the target to have this mass of 40 come in after. Because once we're off horseback, we lose all advantage. And we were gonna have to dismount. So we had to clear the, 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 the force in front of before we advance and we had limited time. So we kept picking off corners until it was small enough that we could actually charge the whole group. That's how we did it. And it, it, it took a few rounds. 
it was a unique tactic that I had never really seen before. It was kind of something I thought, well, why don't cavalrys do that more often? Why would you ride straight into a, a thing? It, like, it always struck me as, why would you ever do that? And uh, so I just did this thing and it worked brilliantly, but I would have never thought of that as a possibility without having figs on the deck. It would have never been an option. And literally because the sparseness of the trees, the rocks that were there, it literally structured whether or not we even had the ability to do that. So it was just the design of the terrain and the figs made that technique possible. And I love the fact that, that figs can do that. Man, at, at, at the risk of derailing too much, I can tell you why cavalrys run straight at people. And it's because when you've got 2,000 pound animals that are running at 40 miles an hour, the damage that that unit will inflict on a human body is. And it'll just keep on but going seriously. right over the, just right over the pudding yeah. flesh. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. At some amount of range deep, yes. But at some point, they slow down. Sure, when they're through the other side and need a rest. If anything, for for folks out there listening, we hope that you are getting a sense of sort of what the physicality of a role-playing game can be. A lot of us spend time in theater of the mind, and obviously for the last couple of years, we have been, been sitting around virtual tabletops and playing virtually. But imagine for a second the difference between a game that you're playing on Discord where you're, everyone's just kind of looking at each other and one person is explaining the situation versus using something like Roll20 or, or Owlbear or some of the other virtual tabletops where the map is there, the tokens are placed, you're seeing things, you know, things that you're not supposed to see are hidden. You know, we've used, we used this technique to great effect uh, in the Candlekeep actual play. Um, the episode that's going to come out soon, um, uh, you know, with session two, there's, uh, there's one scene where all the characters are at a campfire and they're under attack and they don't, they don't know it yet. Um, they don't know it for several rounds until uh, dear, dear Simeon, Peleus Wintermere decides to go investigate uh, what 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 uh, what Sprocket thinks he sees beyond the kind of picket fence there, um, and has a were rat jump out at him. Uh, it was a bear. Him. I'm telling you, it was a bear. <laughs> that's right. Sprocket's still convinced it was a bear, but it wasn't a nice bear. It was a mean bear. Like that's yes. uh, that's important, right? Um, but yeah, just all of a sudden, this thing's jumping out at him, and it wasn't until that happened, and I'm, I that they even realized that they were under attack. And even then it was several rounds later until arrows started shooting into the party that they even realized the scope of the attack that they were under. So this is the physicality that we have been able to replicate in virtual tabletops, which Ben, your influence has helped us craft at the table. We're going to talk in other episodes of fabrication. We're going to talk about terrain. We're going to talk about things like that, but the figs were always the key because those are the things that you're fighting. Those are the things that you sure. I mean, we can, yeah, th- th- exactly. That that's 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 where that's what the game was. That's where it was in your face, um, and and that sort of influence and that sort of environment. I never realized how important it was until I saw it, and then it, once I saw how important it was, I have never gone back. And so much so that I delayed when pandemic hit. Pick us back a year and a half ago. Pandemic hit, and I'm like, hopefully this will go away in a couple of months. I said, we're just not going to play for a little while because I was so invested in using things. My local shop has this huge swath of 
terrain, uh, uh, dwarven forge, uh, random things. So if I need to populate a town guard or a bunch of orcs or a bunch of goblins, they actually have them in little Tupperware containers filled with all goblins. So all I had to focus as a storyteller was my key big bads or my key villains. I can be very specific because I had the rank and file available for use, right? It's free to use. You go and shop, sit down with your crew at a table. They had beautiful large tables with huge sheets of plexiglass uh, and chess boards under it. So if you need to draw something, you can draw something and use terrain to augment. Or what I often did was I would buy uh, maps uh, by um, Paizo, their various terrain maps, and I would put them in and then I would use the other terrain them. So I would put a tree terrain over the tree depicted on the map. Or I bought this big, huge uh, uh, Pathfinder Goblin Warren set, which had wooden palisaded fences. So when I had a nice wooden uh, palisade Goblin uh, camp, barbarian camp, I could literally take a terrain tent and put it over the tent that's on the map. So if I lift the terrain up, you see the inside of the tent. And I could put the thing down. Or if I had a, a, a an inn, I would get all the beds and stuff and put them over the pictures of the beds so you could see how a 20 by 20 box is actually a lot tighter than a 20 by 20 box. So I was able to use all these various terrain features and then put in figs and, and have those things set up in a way that they were on the table and useful. And I was very scared to run virtually because my digital skills are not great. Uh, to do something virtual when I was so used to doing stuff with things, like I thought it lost it. And I found ways to navigate through that and work through that, thanks to a lot of help from others. Some of the tools that are out there are very good for, for these types of things. But I love the fact that figs and maps in my collection of about 500 maps can slide under that plexiglass. And I'm really looking forward to going back to, to that for some of my games. Let's go on, because this is going to help new DMs and possibly players, popular DMs about. The thing about miniatures is also a wonderful tool on the psychology that you can do as a dungeon master to your players. You guys can go back to many times where if you saw the minis and everyone enjoys picking up your mini and checking you out, and that gives them a good idea of who you are in a way. But they're, they're doing what you do normally, and when you look at somebody, you take a example of what I think this person kind of represents and who he is and how he may act through your miniature. But you can also do that many times with NPCs or or anything else you put down. Because when they see a mini and they remember the mini, sometimes their mind tricks them into the mini. There are many abductions from demons and doppelgangers that by just putting the mini down, you can change how easily you can go. You can pull the players to their normal psychology at a table setting instead of the paranoia that just a regular interaction going on from a setting. So there's a lot of things you can do because you can put things down, you pick minis up, all of a sudden the sorcerer who's been casting fireballs on you, uh, just you pick him up and he disappears. The panic is priceless as a DM to players because now they're trying to figure out where and then that the group of where they are, that circle, now it's like, how do they go back to back? Do they split up? Who, who's left alone? And you can see a lot more of those things develop, which a miniature, uh, using miniatures can do that for you in the game session. Uh, I just want to say thanks for joining us. This is a fantastic conversation. Um, I appreciate all that you've done over the years for myself as a gamer, myself as a friend, 
uh, and uh, just educating me on ways to bring forth story. Uh, you made the comment that it's about being able to focus on the emotion and the connection issues uh, and the things create shorthand so you can get to that core. Like you do that so that you can focus on the, on the RP, so that they can RP the combat scenario versus try to figure out where the enemy is versus where they are. Uh, and I think that at that point, I just want to repeat that because that's really one of the big lessons we want everybody to learn. There are mechanisms and ways to build things and do things. We're talking today about why we're doing it and why we're doing it is so that those scenes are legendary. Uh, uh, so, Ben, let's give you a, a few minutes here. Where can, because uh, you've got a pretty good presence out here on the internet also. You, we are not your first rodeo, as the way to say So please tell our listeners where they can find the work that you're doing and how they can engage with you. Uh, a, lot, a, a lot of me originally started on YouTube. Um, I was doing a Spectre Studios uh, tabletop production, um, doing a lot of battles with uh, games workshops, stuff like that. I don't touch much of that lately since the COVID. But um, on my brother's podcast, I think he's on FedSend on Twitch, we've been doing a stream to Sparrow live, which Lee, Wanika, and Glenn are a party. So it's a long, long uh, campaign story that's been going on. Uh, again, I'm going into techni- um, the technical terms of that because um, having to do it on online part of it was also a growing journey for me compared to shooting from the bat rep side of things. Um, but it's, it's been worthwhile. It's cool. It's still got a long journey to go. Um, you've been listening to these guys on the podcast. Now you can see them in actual play. It's pretty random. We do once a month, but once it leaves the Twitch channel, it goes right to my uh, YouTube channel on Spectre Studios. You can find that. And you can find that on Facebook, too. There's, uh, I, I post a bunch of stuff that I'm playing around with and things I find and, and get inspired by it as well. So you can find me there. And, awesome. Uh, and uh, Ben is also a frequent contributor and commenter on uh, the Tabletop Journeys uh, page as well. So uh, I know he has had some great responses to questions uh, that come up and come out of conversations from our podcast. So um, obviously a great, a, a great resource uh, to, to utilize. So, you know, if you see him commenting, as you will often do, uh, say hi, ask away. All right, Ben, thank you so very much for coming on here. Uh, I think it's great that uh, we had this opportunity to kind of give our listeners uh, a glimpse into the the madness behind the name. Uh, you know, it's been great playing you through for 20 years. We're so glad that you came on. Uh, and here's to uh, here's to 20 more. I got some side-by-side playing still going on with a couple of you. I'm, I'm I know. Kid. I'm so excited. The <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Yeah, yep. it's it's the, the first time that actually you and I are playing together at the same table. Was, like, like I that was the point. Yeah. Remember, so, that was my draw to keep yeah. you involved and be, and we're close. We made ourselves brothers. We got a DM twist yep. thrown under ourselves. Um, I did not yep. see that coming either, but I'm I'm excited <laughs> to go down the journey. With you. Yeah, no, I'm excited. So that's uh that's the new Eberron campaign where I'm playing a a, a dwarf cleric turned warforged. So uh, it's a uh, it's got some it's got some sauce. So oh, definitely. Oh, and one last bit of history. Uh, I believe I mentioned it in our episode zero, but Ben is the person who convinced me to play Vampire the Masquerade. Like it was pitched to me. I'm oh, like, wow. I don't know about this. Ben said, "No, you have to play," and I know the guy you have to play. Ben was my second when I played Isaac Watts, and uh, so you know I met Josh. After a fashion, simply because Ben said, no, you were born to play this character. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
So. And that was your Zamisi band? Is that? Yeah, you had to remind me of that yeah. character. I, I almost yeah. really forgot about that. I played so many mm. different roles in Empire. Yeah, you sketched me yeah. out with that guy. That guy. <laughs> I spent a lot of people with that character. I forgot yeah, about that. I, knew, I remember you guys talking about dark characters, and uh, he was one I went down a very, very dark path with. And uh, it was it was interesting when you hear people talk about vibes that you give them after a session. And I, it's, but again, that's also where I say it's it, my role playing to me is a chance to be that theater um, and to play off of that. So to play characters like that is always intriguing to, to delve into the psychology. That's what I treat you guys do. I just want to see how you guys play at psychology of a character. And as long as the different characters you play, the more I get to mix it up with you guys, it's the treat to the story of why I play it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. We appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll talk to you all again later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.